Morning. If you would all stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm reading from Romans 14, verses 8 and 9. Romans 14, 8 and 9. Brothers and sisters, hear the very word of the Lord. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Let's pray together. Our merciful and gracious Father in heaven, uh, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name as his uh, beloved, asking you to bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your most holy word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, so many, so many thoughts spinning in my head. Um, for those who missed the Christian uh, instruction this morning, um, it always amazes me how well the lesson in the morning ties in to um, the sermon that I have prepared, and those two things aren't coordinated. So it's always really exciting to me to come and, and just see God's providence uh, working out in this way. Um, we started this morning in, in Haggai uh, 2.7. I can find it here. I'll actually start at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more... It is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then we went over to Hebrews 12, and we talked about this shaking um, that the Lord is, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the Lord rules and reigns until he defeats all of his enemies. And this, this defeat comes in these shakings, right? All these things that stand against the Lord and his Christ will be shaken, right? They will, they will not make it to, to the end. And um, I can't help but think in the, the times in which we live, it's, it's always been true, right? But in In the last few years, it feels like the ground underneath us is continually shaking. Can I get an amen? Amen. And as I was thinking on that, um, there's this idea in our culture right now, and it's really an important idea, and I, I actually applaud our culture for pushing on this particular topic. And it's one of identity. 
Now, when I say that, it's a, it's a loaded term today, isn't it? There is all manner of confusion around identity. But if I ask you about your identity, you're going to tell me something like, well, I'm a male. I've you know, lived most of my life in Illinois. My last name is Evans. Uh, I used to have all brown hair. Now it's about half and half. Um, you know, I might tell you my hobbies. I might tell you I'm Presbyterian. And these identities are really important. The one I left out is Christian. And obviously, we should start there. But I think even in our current age, we tend to get this one wrong. We tend to base it, or we tend to root it in the wrong place. If you were to tell me that you are a Christian, and if I was feeling ornery, I might ask you, what makes you a Christian? Typically, from mature, faithful believers, they will begin to explain all the things that they do. Well, I have faith in Jesus Christ. It's great. Why pray? I read God's word. I go to church. Those are all good things. But do any of those make you a Christian? I'm seeing heads shaking. No, you guys are sharp. This passage that I read for Romans, it kind of it comes at the issue backwards. And I like that the context that this passage is in is in how we relate to one another. And you might feel like I'm going to pull it out of context a little bit, but if you hang with me towards the end of the sermon, we'll get closer to sort of the context that it lives in. But it says, whether we live or die... We are the Lord's. That is our identity. When you say, I am a Christian, it is because you belong to Christ. And then it explains how we got there, right? For to this end, for we are the Lord's, it is because Christ both died and rose and was revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So see, when we come at this idea of identity, from this passage we come away with two great truths. The first one is this. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus Jesus is Lord. Lord. Now again, if I was feeling ornery, the second one would be, and you are not. But what it says is that we are the Lord's. We belong to him in life and in death. You see, this is, you can't, you can't sum up our existence any more than that in life And in death, regardless of what happens to us, 
We are His. He is Lord. He is large and in charge, one might say. He is the Master. He possesses supreme power and authority. There is no authority higher. If I can add a side of Colossians uh, chapter 1 here, 16 and 17, it says, For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. For he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I want to bring this this creation idea into play here because there's really this threefold lordship of Jesus. One is that he created us. He graciously creates us, right? Speaks us into existence. Grabs some dirt and muddies it with his breath. Jesus mercifully redeems us or purchases us, purchases us. He owns us. He bought us out of slavery. He delivered us from that life, from death to life through his sacrifice. And then the third one is Jesus' sovereign love governs all of our life. Life and death, and all the circumstances in between there. He is the sovereign Lord, threefold lordship of Christ. He created us, he redeems us, he rules over us. This has massive implications in every possible direction. It affects How we view God, how we view the cosmos, the creation, how we view ourselves, how we view each other, and how we view our circumstances. So... Go over to Romans 14. I used to be faster than I could actually see. where my wife is saying, don't lick your fingers. Don't lick your fingers. Don't lick your fingers. I want to consider these implications. Um, As I said, it, it really impacts the way we view God and the cosmos, but we're not really quite going to focus on that today. We're going to view, we're going to look at the last three here. How we view ourselves, how we view each other, and how we view 
our circumstances. Again, this is based on our, on our identity, right? That we, are, that we are Christians, that we belong to Christ. So if you're in Romans 14 with me, um, verses 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God. That's the key phrase here. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Again, he's talking about this division that we should not be um, at each other. But as, as, we, as we identify with Jesus, as we are rooted in Jesus, and as you were talking about earlier, um, this, this applies to us individually, and this applies to us corporately as a church body. The question that really needs to be asked here is um, the famous theological question, so what, right? So why does it matter that we belong to Christ? How does it, how does it impact our lives? Why, why should I care? There's, uh, if we can say it this way, there's a benefit to the lordship of Christ. We might say it another way. There is a comfort that we draw from, that we receive in our belonging to Christ. We don't talk a lot about what kind of comfort do we receive from being a Christian. Again, we tend to be more focused on what we're doing, right? Instead of who we are and what we receive. It's not wrong to think in these terms. It's just not the way our brains are wired. We don't, we don't think enough about what we receive from the Lord. And I think some of this might be because when we think of comfort, we tend to think of kind of worldly Comforts, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean like in, in a creaturely existence, right? So why do, you, why do you have a job, right? You have a job so you can make money so that you can be more comfortable, right? If you don't have water and you don't have food and you don't have clothes and you don't have a house to live in, it's not a very comfortable existence, is it? So, I mean, that's, it's not wrong in and of itself to desire that comfort. But what we have all learned, um, and obviously some of that gets pushed out really far into comforts that are negative or destructive, but the worldly comforts never really quite satisfy, do they? When you drink water, you eventually are going to want more water. When you eat food, you're going to want more food. Your clothes wear out, your house wears out, Something's always going wrong with the house, right? Always. You just can't get away from it. But this idea of of comfort is one that is throughout the scriptures. Uh, In the New Testament alone, there are two primary words for comfort. Um, And they they mean what you think they mean, to aid, to help, to comfort. The ones that you might not 
uh, be aware of are encourage or exhort. But the two primary words uh, for comfort appear 140 times in the New Testament. 140 times. And then there are six or eight other words that are also used for comfort, some shades of meaning with those words. But the two primary, 140 times. This seems like a, a concept we should have picked up on, right? 140 times. Um, as I was talking with my wife this morning, she reminded me of this verse. and It was in my notes, and I'm like, that's, that's funny. It's the very verse that I was going to start with. In 2 Corinthians, Paul starts off his letter, right? Starting at verse 3, he says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. There's your New Testament, New Testament equivalent to Hesed. You knew I was going to talk about Hesed, right? So, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, there's your word for comfort again, for so our consolation also abounds by Christ. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our comfort also abounds by Christ. He provides this comfort. Are there going to be sufferings? Yes, he promises us sufferings. If you are in Christ, you will suffer like Christ did. But he says he is our comfort. So I'm, I'm moving towards the first uh, question in the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's, a, there's an old saint named uh, Zachariah um, Yursinus, which is a funny last name, Yursinus. Matt, you should like that one, Yursinus. But um, he, he does an, an extensive commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. It is fantastic. I highly recommend it. But he says this about comfort. Comfort is a deliberation of the heart whereby we juxtapose our misery and the grace which Christ earned. So that in considering the grace, our grief is tempered. Does that make sense? He gives us an example. A patient who has just undergone an operation suffers pain. The doctor tells him that pain is temporary and will soon disappear. After the doctor leaves, the patient is still in pain, but he juxtaposes the doctor's reassurance in his pain, thereby alleviating his concern. 
In the same manner, we place the misery of this life over against God's revelation of salvation. Then we are still subject to all manner of misery and adversity, but through them and in them, we are comforted. Do you see what happens there? So as we're going through this suffering, we are called to remember. We are called to go back to God's word, which is the ultimate um, source of our comfort. And replace the misery with the promises. Does that make sense? When you're suffering, you focus on the promises. If you are overwhelmed in the sufferings, if you begin to identify in all these sufferings, you are called to go over here and identify with all the promises, with all the blessings. In Isaiah 40, we read this. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the cry of the prophets from the Old Testament. It's the cry of the prophets from the New Testaments. It is the core of the message today. You see, Jerusalem was guilty. They deserved judgment. They deserved wrath. And yet God in his mercy calls to his prophets and says, I want you to comfort my people. I want you to speak to them and tell them that their warfare has already been accomplished. That their sins have been pardoned. Their sins have been paid for. And they received righteousness in its place. This is exactly what the passage is talking about in Romans 14. That because of Jesus, because of him dying for our sins, of rising from the grave and being revived and ascending into heaven, he is Lord of the living and the dead. That's you and me. He has accomplished the warfare. Our sins are forgiven. We Wear the righteousness of Christ. Second, Thess- Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says this. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation 
through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Matt, filling that temple with glory. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation, comfort, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God has chosen us to salvation. He sanctifies us through the Spirit. He gives us the gift of faith so that we can believe the truth. He's called us by His gospel. And He says, be comforted. Be of good hope. Grace is at work in your life. Let this comfort your heart. Let this establish you. Let this comfort that you experience, this encourage that you experience, let it establish you in the good work. That's how we do. It's because we are. We belong to Christ, and he provides this comfort. Make sense? Which brings us to the Heidelberg Catechism, questions one and two, Lord's Day number one. For those who may not know, the Heidelberg Catechism is old, even by our standards. It's almost 100 years older than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And for those of you familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they are both fantastic, but they take a different approach, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism is is very matter-of-fact, right? It, It just gives you the the facts. It just lays them out. But it lays them out at a pretty high level. At least we think so, right? The shorter catechism, the, the, the guys who wrote it said it was for the young and feeble-minded. Welcome to that group. Because <clears throat> it feels a little heady when we read it, doesn't it? But the Heidelberg comes at it much more personally. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism starts out, what is the chief end of man? That's pretty high and lofty, especially for a five-year-old, right? But the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism makes sense to nearly everyone who understands the language. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And that's really the question, isn't it? Society around us is raging, tearing itself to bits. And it's largely over this question. Where do I find comfort? Who am I? And where do I find comfort? And the Heidelberg, in a short paragraph, completely nails it. Do you guys all know the Heidelberg Catechism, at least the first couple questions? I would recommend you get um, the first and second question 
put them on a piece of paper, laminate them, whatever you have to do, stick them on your bathroom mirror, memorize it as a family. Really, um, the vast majority of the counseling that I've done in almost 20 years of ministry, if people would just get a hold of this, I mean, really, if they would just embrace this, pastoring would be like a part-time job. (laughs) Not really. So the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact... All things must work together for my salvation. All things. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Tells me who I am. Tells me my condition. Tells me how my condition has been cured. Assures me that the sovereign Lord is working on my behalf. That he has promised me eternal life. And in those days when I'm not willing and I'm not ready. Says he makes me live for him. That is Hesed. That is a faithful, covenantal God. Now, the second question goes a little bit more like the Westminster Confession because instead of saying, what must you do? It says, what must you know? What must you know at a really basic level to live and die, catch this, in the joy of this comfort? Anybody here lack joy? Don't raise your hand. Your joy is found in this comfort. You can have that stupid grin on your face when things are going terribly wrong because you know Jesus is in control. And I'm not trying to sound trite. This is is really important, eternal, heavy, weighty, glorious matters we're discussing. Who here wants to live and die in the joy of the comfort of being in the Father's arms. I do. And it says you need to know three things, right? Three things. And they're really simple. 
how great my sin and misery are. This is who I am. I am a sinner. Second, how I am set free from my sins and misery. The cure to my condition. And third, that I am to thank God for such a deliverance. Seems fair enough, doesn't it? Simple enough. I'm a sinner. I've been freed from my sins. And I'm supposed to be thankful. It really comes back to this Identity thing again, doesn't it? We established at the beginning that Jesus is Lord. He is our faithful servant. That covenantally faithful God who when we aren't faithful, He is there. In the answer to this question, it says, He is faithful. He has paid for your sins with His blood. He sets you free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over you. He works all things for your good. He assures you of eternal life. He makes you willing and ready. And you as one who belongs to Him, you get to live and die in the joy of this comfort. You must know how great your sin and misery are. You must know that Jesus has set you free from all of your sins and misery. And that you must be thankful to the Lord for such a deliverance. As I was working through this, I just I kept hearing the, the John Newton quote over and over and over and over again in my head. At the end of his life, he couldn't see, he could barely speak, And he even starts the quote and he says his memory is about had it. It's about gone. And he says, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. And I would have to think that old brother Newton was thankful. You see, this this is what we really need to get a hold of. This idea, this condition that we're in. Jesus promised us suffering, but he promises us so much more. So as you're you're walking through this world, as you're waging war against the flesh and the devil, and you're having to deal with things like strained or broken relationships, what should your first thoughts be? I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And I am thankful to the Lord for such deliverance. That's where we start. 
We were talking about this in the car on the way to supper last night. We always want to go after the other person, don't we? When the situations, when the relationships are strained or broken. Do you know what they did? It starts with us, right? Get the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in your neighbor's eye. What if you're in an impossible situation? You know, people in the last couple years, they lost their jobs over the craziness. They had to move. They didn't have work. They couldn't find a place to live. Family wouldn't talk to them. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. And I am thankful to the Lord for such deliverance. The Word tells us that the life that we're living is momentary light afflictions. We tend to think it's the end of the world because we think we're the world. We think we're the whole center of the universe. Momentary light afflictions. Again, I'm not trying to belittle what we go through. I mean, I, I get to interact with people who are in deep despair. They're in deep, dark depression. And it's not one of those where you can just go in and say, you just need to get over it, because they would really like to. They know where they are. And they can't get out. And yet it's the same answer. You're a great sinner. Christ is a great savior. And your first job, your first responsibility is to be thankful to the Lord for such a deliverance. You may be saying right now, Evans, you just, you just don't really understand. My situation is bad. You don't understand how bad it is. You're probably right. I probably don't understand. But Jesus does, right? And his promises are still true. No matter how bad your circumstances, his promises are still true. True. Amen? But I mean, this is, this is really where it breaks down, isn't it? Because we, we want to focus on the other person's sin. I can't believe that they... Or we get frustrated with our own sins. I can't believe I did that thing again. Like we're earning our salvation. But we're not thankful for the Lord's goodness by our definition. And we grumble. I can't believe he's letting this happen to me. Where's the comfort? I've, I've, I've been this person in every one of these instances. I've been this person. I will be this person again. Because I am a great sinner. 
That's just really what it comes down to, isn't it? But I know that Christ is a great Savior. And I am thankful that he makes me willing and able and ready to be thankful for such a deliverance. I mean, what, is it, what does it really look like to walk faithfully in light of this knowledge? It really comes down to, do we believe that the Lord is sovereign or not? It really does. Do we trust Him? Do we believe His Word? Do we think He's good for it? Do we really believe do we really? All things must, must work together for my salvation. All things must work together for my good, is what Romans 8 tells us, right? And we're quick to play that card when somebody's down. Oh, all things work together for good, right? It's easy to say. And you want to poke somebody in the eye when they say it to you, right? But you know, when it's, when it's really bad, when, when things have gone off the rails and you, you, can't even, you can't even account for all the things that are going sideways, you're, 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 just, you're just hanging on thinking, I can't believe this is bad. I, is it possible it could get worse? It can't get any worse than this. You're just, you're just hanging on, and you want to pray, and you want to ask God to help, and there are no words. What do you do then? The part that we usually don't quote in Romans 8 Comes in, part, comes in front of the part that we normally do. If you start at verse 26, let's go ahead and turn there with me, would you? I can dry up my eyes here a little bit. Romans 8, 26. I mean, have you been there? Have you been to the place where you can't even pray? Like, you know, you do the thing, you get on your knees and you clasp your hands, just pain, right? Just sorrow, just despair. Look what this passage says. It says, likewise, the Spirit, the Spirit that dwells in you, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Do you see what is happening here? In that moment when you've got no words Nothing but tears. God says, 
I know this is going to happen. I know the suffering is going to seem unbearable. And you're not even going to know what to pray. He says, I got this. The Spirit is going to pray for you. He's going to make intercessions on your behalf according to the will of God. And we know that if we pray in accordance with God's will, He will do it. Amen? Then it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, to whom we belong, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. He takes you in just a few verses from not even being able to pray into reminding you that this whole thing is in his hands, right? That before time began... He predestinated you to this current existence. He called you and enabled you to respond in faith, by faith and through faith to that calling. He has justified you. He has made you right before God. He has taken away your sins and He has given you His righteousness. When you stand before the judge of the universe, you are righteous in His sight. Because you are robed in Jesus' righteousness. And he says at the end, them he also glorified. We are going to rise from the dead like Jesus. And we are going to be glorified in our bodies like Jesus. It's a done deal. Glorified here is in the past tense. All right, we're reading a lot of scripture, but that's good, right? That's our real comfort. So, you're already there in Romans. I'm going to join you. Because there's something we don't want to miss. Starting at verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places you possess right now. Who shall bring any charge against his elect? You and I are guilty. Oh my goodness. I mean, we sinned this morning. We probably have sinned since we've been here. We are guilty, and yet it says, it is, it is God who justifies. Nobody can bring a charge against his elect. He has taken those sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. Who is he who condemns you? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. We now have the Spirit praying for us, and we have Jesus praying for us. Who can condemn us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? I'm sorry, from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long, in life and in death. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet... As we are sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are what? We are more than conquerors. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors, conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? We belong to Him. Did he leave anything off the list? What can do this? Nothing. We are secure in Jesus. That is our comfort. You want to know how excited this makes me? I have two Bibles. (laughs) I don't know where the other one came from. But again, we we come to this this deep, burning theological question. So what? How do we respond in the moment? How do we apply this? How do we do this? At the end of the answer to question number one, and at the end of the answer to question number two, It gives us some really, really good nuggets. The Spirit allows us 
to see God at work, right? You know, people are like, oh, I still sin. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Does your sin bother you? Does it hurt? Does it kind of make you sick to your stomach? That's the spirit. He's saying, look, the Lord is at work here. You hate your sin. Unbelievers don't hate their sin. They love their sins. They identify themselves with their sin, by their sin. The answer says, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You know, I have, I have found that one of the things that people really struggle with when they're in that despair, when they're really suffering, Satan goes right after this point. He will attack your assurance. Well, your faith isn't strong enough to be a believer. Nope, Jesus gave me faith. It's good to go. Well, you're not going to make it to the end. No, Jesus says he's going to finish the work that he started in me. He's going to preserve me to the end. Well, has God really said? Yeah, he really did. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. This is all about Romans chapter 8 today. Starting at verse 10, if you're still there. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ be in you, like you take a little note here, read through the book of Colossians sometime and look at all the references of us being in Christ. It's amazing. I think there's 30 some references to us being in Christ in that, in that letter. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, and he does, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. He'll make them alive by His Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Remember when I was talking about being in his arms? That's what this Abba, Father is really trying to communicate. Like you're, you're sitting on God's lap, and you've got your head on his chest. And he's got his arms around you. 
That's, the, that's what's being communicated here. That's the comfort. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's the comfort. That's the encouragement. We get to see God at work. Only the children of God see that. We have the eyes of faith to be able to see Him at work. And if children, then heirs, heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ, and if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. There's that dead and raised and glorified again. And the answer to the question tells us that we will desire, we will be made able and willing, we'll be made willing to live according to his word. Isn't that amazing? Our desire will be away from sin and towards obeying his word. The joy of the comfort. Romans 15, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is that idea back to the original passage in Romans that this is on an earthly sense really about how we interact with each other. That we are to bear the infirmities of the weak. So when that person has sinned against you, instead of you going and poking them in the eye, you're actually supposed to comfort them with the scriptures and remind them that they are a great sinner and that Jesus has paid for their sins and that they should be thankful. Let every one of us please his neighbor for, his good, for its good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation, comfort, grant you to be like-minded one towards another according to Christ Jesus, that you with one mind and with one mouth may glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive you one another, as Christ has also received us to the glory of God. You see how this works? Jesus knows that you are a sinner, and he died for you anyway. He laid down his life for you. Greater love has no man than this, and you lay down your life for a friend. That is what we are called to do. If we are living in the joy of this comfort, we are called, we are commanded to lay down our lives for those who are sinning against you and comfort them through the scriptures. It's just amazing, isn't it? Psalm 119 says this, Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness, there's Hesed again, be for my comfort. 
according to thy word and, and unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live. For thy law is my delight. When we go from death to life, we go from loving our sins to hating our sins to hating God's law to loving God's law. That's the transition. We love the law. We love to obey the word. When that person is sinning against you again, still, we are to go to them and comfort them in the scriptures. Encourage them. Exhort them. But comfort them. And then the last, last part of the answer to question number two I am to thank God for such deliverance. This is our job. This is what we are called to do. You've heard me say this from this pulpit before. How do we live and die in the joy of this comfort? We thank the Lord. We praise the Lord. We worship the Lord. In the trials... And in the tribulations, we lift up our hearts and we lift up our hands. Do you want to resist the devil? Do you want him to see that his tyranny no longer has any power over you? Do you want him to flee? Worship in the moment. When things are really bad, Worship the Lord. When you rise up, worship the Lord. When you lie down, worship the Lord. Worship with your family. Worship with your friends. Come here with your brothers and sisters and worship on the Lord's Day. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord, that's us, say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Wow. He has redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. Our warfare is accomplished. Back to the passage in Isaiah, right? Colossians 3, and let the peace of God Rule in your hearts, to the which you are called in one body. And what? Be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Worship the Lord. Do you want to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Anyone? Again, an amen. Show of hands. <coughs> Dance in the aisles. Oh, we're Presbyterians. We don't do that. Sorry. No dancing in the aisles. <clears throat> do you want to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Do you want to drive the devil crazy? Rejoice evermore.
pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And pray God your whole spirit and soul and body and life and in death and in all the circumstances will preserve you blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that has called you, and he will also do it. That's his faithfulness. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, your word today has shown us that you are indeed the God of all comfort. And that you have provided all that we need to live in the joy of this comfort. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith. That you would allow us to see each day more and more you at work in our lives, in the lives of those around us and even in our community at large. We pray that this peace that passes all understanding, this this comfort that we rest in, this joy that we experience in your presence, will fill us, will overfill us, It will splash out of us and onto those around us. Lord, let us display the love and joy of Christ wherever we go. We thank you for your word today. We thank you for your spirit who comforts us and leads us into all truths. And we thank you in Jesus' name.